Welcome to the Blinding Pilgrims Podcast. We're back. Bish, bash, bosh. Hello. Today, well, we we're have, back. Well, we're back. <laughs> I'm not in this episode at all. Uh, no, you're not, actually. This is, uh, we recorded, I recorded this episode um, when Darren was away, and uh, we've, been meaning, like, we've been meaning to have a chance to sit down and, and talk to today's guest, Tracy McKeague, for ages. I've sat down and talked to her many times, um, but um, to get a chance to talk to her about the music and to hear about um her learning to play and there's lots of things that she describes about growing up in northern ireland that just had a, a real resonance for me as you'll hear <laughs> and we have a good a good chat about irish dancing and all that kind of crack so great stuff um that's that's today's episode so did you just get me into the the uh, the sales pitch for patreon is that that's why i'm here no i'm gonna do the sales pitch for patreon because I had a great experience today where I was showing somebody the website and they were really impressed and they, and they were like, oh, it's brilliant, that looks brilliant. And, many, and I said, oh, 25,000 downloads. And they were like, what? Fuck me, that's brilliant. And then they saw the number of subscribers we have and they were like, ah, right. It's 36 at the minute. It's well, 36. hang on, this is, we're recording this two weeks early. <laughs> it's 36. Yeah, but maybe for Christmas, maybe we'll have a Christmas boost. Maybe yeah. there'll be a Christmas rush. Well, actually, yeah. insane. If you, want, if you have somebody in your family, right, who who you don't particularly like and you want to give them something that's super cheap and that they're not going to enjoy and, and keeps giving Get relentless you know, somebody who can't stand diddly d music you know as my as one of my one of my old mates at uni used to say like we used to we used to kind of go to the occasional session and i was always playing planksty tapes and stuff and we were friends for a good six or seven years before he finally said to me one night when we were high or something he said I, I don't like Daily D music. Could you put something else on? <laughs> well, it took you like three minutes with the band, with the bluegrass stuff for me. Turn that shit off. Uh, so anyway, that's that. So yeah. today's guest is lovely fiddle player and just great crack. And her name is Tracy McKeague. Um, and we have a great conversation. I, I think we it's on the tape about, about Donegal fiddle playing. Um, and she actually touches on something that we discussed with David Game a few episodes ago where we're talking about Donegal fiddle playing and this uh, CD of Donegal fiddle playing called The Brass Fiddle. Yeah, right. Which is a collection of different Donegal fiddle playing and and yeah, I'm, I'm not going to Do we have it. links to that? Or like, uh, yeah, 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 we, yeah, yeah, we have links to it and it's it's actually on Spotify, I thought. Really? You know, I, yeah. I had in my head that this was some kind of obscure thing that I'd find but apparently it's not that obscure. Yeah. Isn't it funny um, with Spotify do you do that? Like I've always been a, I don't know, just say hipster right i've always kind of like weird things and been into things first and sometimes now with spotify you'll find something that's just so amazing but you don't you don't hang on to it and you don't cherish it as long because you've already found the next shiny thing like i want to slow my mind down a bit and be like no you've actually found a treasure here to keep this piece of gold you know that's that's completely true and uh I mean, this is another sort of discussion to have or conversation to have with somebody because I, I wonder about what happens when 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 everything is there more or less that you that you want to get your hands on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of stops being special. To me, anyway, like uh, the number of times I've sat looking at Spotify and my mind being blank thinking, I know what I want to listen to, right? And you go back to all familiar. And I, yeah. It's actually something which I probably brought it up in a ham-fisted way several times with several guests. And it's something, it's because it relates to me. I've taught myself the banjo via YouTube. And I didn't pick, uh, I've never had a lesson face-to-face with anyone. I've done workshops, but I've never had a face-to-face lesson with anyone. 
so uh, I can play. I'm not brilliant, but I can play. But what I've done is I've definitely cherry picked, taking a bit from this guy, taking a bit from this girl. Can't really figure out what she's doing, but he does the tune, so I'll just do it that way. So there's there's positives because now I can get through tunes, but there's something to be said to picking something, mastering it, understanding what you've got to then unlearn it, which I see the whole time. I, I, I don't understand it enough to unlearn it. I can cheat my way through. It's like having cheat notes, I suppose, the whole time. I, you can pass the exam, but it doesn't stay with you. It doesn't live in you any as much. I, I definitely have asked a few people about how they think um, online learning will affect people. Like I think maybe even with, with John Carty was asking about different styles and as he was calling them accents. Yeah. Well, of course, if, if I'm jumping from accent to accent to accent, what, am I, what do I get in the end? Well, I suppose literally I have one at the minutes. This draw to Australian accent. I don't know. Yeah. Is there a musical? Is there a musical equivalency? Is there? Is there a, like? Is there even any weight in me giving um, value to this inverted commas purist idea? I don't know. I was a have a ramble. Well, we? I, but the purist thing it does come up in in our conversation with Tracy because when we're talking about the brass fiddle it's not your martin hayes um elegant sublime it's it's it feels like it's coming from a a completely different place right yeah and there's something really as i say to tracy there's something very elemental about it you know so anyway that's uh that's today's episode we're, we're all done that was an hour and a half of listening to me and darren <laughs> sorry tracy for getting into your time uh, yeah uh, <laughs> um so let's get on with today's episode we're delighted to say here is tracy mckeek enjoy
Tracy, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Thank you. What were those two tunes? So there were two hornpipes. The first one was the Boys of Blue Hill and the second one was the Home Ruler. Right, so where did you get those? So the Boys of Blue Hill was actually the first tune, the first Irish tune I learned to play. And it was when I was about six and I learned to play it on the tin whistle. And I have a memory of my father bringing me down with my brother, who was a year and a half younger than me, with two tin whistles. And we went down to St Pat's Hall, which was down the town. It was in the other parish. And uh, we were in a room full, full of kids. And I don't have very clear memories of it, but I remember that we learned some tunes. And that was the first one that I learned to play right through. How old were you? I think it was about six or seven. Mm. And, and this was in Straban? This, this was in Straban, yeah. And it was the first instrument I played. Right, so so for the benefit of um, our many Australian listeners, uh, give them a, a portrait of where Straban is in in Ireland. Yeah, so Straban is in the northwest. So it's in Ulster and it's uh, in uh, County Tyrone, which is in the northwest of Ireland. And it is on the border with Donegal. And it's uh, the closest town that people might know of is Derry, which is about a 20 minute drive away. Right. So and, 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 and did, did I ask you, how, how old were you when, when you were... Trips down with your dad? Yeah, I think it was about six or seven. It's right. definitely an early memory. And it's around about the same time that I started doing Irish dancing. Right. Because we used to do the Irish dancing in the same place on a Tuesday and a Thursday. And then this was a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. So it was probably my father's way of getting rid of us for the Saturday morning. Because he worked Monday to Friday. And he went fishing on a Sunday. So Saturday was probably his only day to get stuff done around the house. So it was probably because he could leave us there for a couple of hours. Right. And um, how many was in your family? Well, just mum and dad and myself and my younger brother, Gareth. He's 18 months younger than me. And did you actually um, (laughs) want to do this or was it? I mean, I guess that doesn't really come into it. Yeah, I can't can't actually remember, but I think I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. And around about the same time, I started doing Irish dancing. So the music was familiar to me. Um, You know, so I think I did enjoy it. I certainly kept the tin whistle going for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the only instrument to play Irish music on because shortly after that I did start playing viola at school and piano mm-hmm. so and that was more my mother was sort of you know kind of forced us to do other instruments It's funny for me to hear the boys of Blue Hill because when I was growing up there was an orangeman who lived across the road from us and he used to come over and he would always bring us over, you know, bring over uh, vegetables from his garden and stuff. He was a lovely, lovely fella. And he marched at the front of the band every year with the gloves on and stuff. And uh, But he used to come over and he would always put one of us on his knee and he would lilt the boys of Blue Hill. Mm-hmm. So every time I hear it, I think of Billy, Billy Greer. Oh, yeah, he's a great... Yeah, that's funny. Like, so it is, and it's, it's still played a lot. You know, I'd still play it at sessions. I wonder um, why. Um, I wonder why there's certain tunes that are the tunes that you learn early. Um, I think somebody a couple of weeks ago was talking about that. Like, are there certain figures within certain tunes that are particularly usable <laughs> through any other tune you'll learn? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Probably because it is a nice simple tune and it's got a nice melody that you it's easy to remember. So I think especially for teaching kids, you want to, you want them to learn something that's easy to remember because a lot of the tunes are maybe a bit tricky. And there's a there's a nice sort of sprung rhythm to it that is yes. quite there's easy a to... a bit of a lilt to it, oh. yeah. And I mean, it is a hornpipe, which is a dance tune. And um, to be honest, it was always my favourite dance, was the hornpipe. 
Right. So, so did you like dancing then? Yes, I did. I loved dancing. Yeah. 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 What was What was the name of your dance school? Was it? It was the Barrett School of Irish Dancing, and it was run by Marie Barrett. And sometimes her sister Nan would come along and help. Um, so we called them the Miss Barretts. And Marie was very cross. Oh, she was always very cross with us, but I think that was just Irish dance teachers in general. And then and Nan was much easier, so she used to just sort of sit and smoke her cigarette. If, so if Marie couldn't turn up, Nan would be like, oh, Nan's here today, so it'll be easy enough, you know. And oh, yeah. She'd just let us do whatever dances we want. And uh, she'd sit there smoking her cigarettes. So what are the dances? Like, my memory of Irish dancing was um, my sisters, a couple of my sisters were forced to go. Mm. You know, I went to mm. Tin Whistle classes. They went to Irish dancing yeah. and... Uh, and and it wasn't a barrel of laughs, I have to say, you know. Hi. Um, no, sometimes oh, so it wasn't. Yes, if there was a fesh coming up, so the fesh was, you know, the Irish dancing competition. Um, so if there was one of them coming up, then it got serious. The pressure's on. The pressure was on. You had to take it seriously. You had to, you know, there was no mess and the arms had to be straight. The head had to be up, up. You know, you had to be going in the right direction, going at the right speed and pointing the toes. Now, you know, so that it did get serious then. And, and then, so again, for... Um, for folks who aren't sort of necessarily familiar with the the rudiments of early Irish dances, what are the kinds yeah. of things you learn early on? Right, the sweets of May and stuff like that. No, no, that was more. That's different. That's more Cayley dancing. So the the big dances like the sweets of May and the walls of Limerick, those were Cayley dances. So, um, but we did do team dances. So when you were doing Irish dancing, you do your solo dances and then team dances. And I, to be honest, I preferred the team dances. Um, so you might have had like a forehand. So a forehand. Well, I suppose the two hand was the, the smallest group you could have. So two two people dancing together. Um, and then there'd be a three hand, a four hand, six, eight hand. And the eight hands were good because they were a bit more, there was a bit more variety and a bit more moving around. But in our dance school, there was no boys. We couldn't get the boys to join at all in Straban. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were tall, you had to be a boy. And each set of two, there was a boy and a girl. And the boy was always on the left so I was nearly always a boy because I was nearly always a bit taller than than the girls we were dancing with. But there, there isn't a difference in the the actual steps for there's a boy. Sometimes, there. sometimes there there is. Yep, mm. yep. Um, so saying a three hand, the boy's in the middle, so he would send the girls off and then catch them back oh, in a right, catch. So, yeah. so yes, yeah. there sometimes was a bit of a difference, or sometimes they would do the same steps, but the girls would dance it first and then stop, and then the boys would dance it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, your brother was doing this too? Nope. No. He didn't do any of it. He didn't do any of it? No. He tried it all, but he gave them... He didn't... He, I don't think he was made to go Irish dancing. He played soccer. So he was... You know, he would play that at school. Um, he didn't play Irish music. He played every brass instrument under the sun until he got to the tuba. And then he stuck with that because he could leave it at school. So he wasn't really into the music. Mm-hmm. He was more sporty. Right. So yeah, so he wasn't made to go and there were no other boys doing it. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, in Oma and Derry, there were the two neighbouring towns, there was lots of boys doing Irish dancing. Mm-hmm. So just something about the Straban boys, they didn't get involved. So what was it like growing up in Straban then? I had a great time growing up in Straban. It was a it was a very close-knit community. Um, most of my cousins lived there and the rest of my cousins lived in Oma, which was only about 20 miles up the road. So, um, I mean, it... Look, I grew up during the Troubles and there were things going on in Straban, but where I lived, it was kind of, you know, everything happened very close by. Like, you know, um, went to the youth group up the road. We got the bus to the youth orchestra on Friday night. My friends all lived within walking distance. Um, So I had a great time growing up there and I had a great group of friends. And I think 
my mum kept us busy. I mean, we had something to do every night of the week. Well, I did. I had, you know, piano lesson, Irish dancing, youth group, Irish dancing, and then Friday night was orchestra. So I was busy. So pretty uh, heavy on the music then. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. My mum liked music. I think the, she only ever really played a bit of basic piano, but she just liked the music. Mm-hmm. Where was your mum from? From Drumquin in mm-hmm. County Tyrone. So again, a little village, about halfway between Straban and Oma. Right. Yeah. And, and your dad? And he's from Straban. He's from Straban. Yeah, and his generations before that were from Straban or the Sparrens, just up in the mountains outside Straban. Nice. And then, and then um, was he into music? Did he sing or play? Or? Yeah, so daddy was a dancer. So he, not Irish dancing, he was a ball, he loved ballroom dancing and um, well, any kind of dancing, jiving. You know, that would have been his social life, would have been going to dances. So he loved dancing. Um, and, you know, till, you know, till he was old, and couldn't move anymore. He loved dancing, especially at weddings. So with your mum? No, unfortunately not with my mum because mum um, had polio as a child. So she, um, the, how the polio affected her was it um, caused muscle wasting in one of her legs. So she ha- always walked with a limp and would get tired very quickly. And so she couldn't really, she could do a very basic dance, but not anything for, you know, too long. So mm. um, no, usually at weddings, my dad would dance his, either his sisters or, you know, me, my cousins, you know, whoever would dance with him, he would dance with them. And he always used to say that all the girls in Straban wanted to dance with him because he was such a good dancer. So he wasn't very modest about it, but, but he was a good dancer. <laughs> and, and he loved it. Aye. You know, he had great rhythm. Now, he didn't really sing apart from at Mass. So he sang, he had a very deep voice and he sang the hymns at Mass. But other than that, I never heard him sing. Um, now, he played the trumpet. So he played the trumpet in the local brass band uh, when he was younger. I think I think he probably stopped when he got married. But when he was younger, he played trumpet. Now, what was what was the brass band? That's interesting because I, I always think of a brass band as being either police or something. Coal miners? Yeah. Yeah, no, Straban had a, has a very rich tradition of brass bands. Right? Yes, oh, yes. So, the, so there's two parishes and Daddy played in the St. Joseph's brass band, which was over the town. Um... But the school that my brother went to and the reason why he was given every brass instrument until he decided he liked one because every boy in that school got a chance to play a brass instrument. It was St. Coleman's High School. So it was a comprehensive school. Um, but they had a fantastic brass band. That's so interesting. So where, where does that tradition come from in Straban? That's no really idea. I have no idea. And still to this day, there's the Straban Concert Brass, which is mostly made up of boys who went to St. Coleman's and continued on playing in the Straban Concert Brass. And music teachers, a lot of music teachers. And they play every Christmas in church, and it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm. So so for you then, um, coming through your sort of adolescent years and stuff, um, was there a point where you wanted to give up the dancing? Did you, did you want to just get further and further into it? No, I was only ever a social dancer. So I never really practised. I never took it too seriously. I enjoyed the social side of it. I really liked the team dancing because it was fun. And I, I never really was, I was never brilliant. You know, I would have won the odd, I might have won the odd trophy at the Straban Fesh, the local Fesh, but if it was in Derry, no chance. Mm. The de- yeah. and, and you know, it's funny, we spoke to David McDonald a couple of weeks back, who's mm. a really well-known dancer here in Australia, and right. um, we were talking about river dance. And oh, yeah. one thing that we forgot to, to really talk about was like how Irish dancing was pre-river dance. 
So yeah. was this pre-Riverdance this when you were? This well pre-Riverdance, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So Riverdance happened when I was in university. Right. So yeah. I'll, div- I'll div- diverge for a second because I was living with a girl in university. We were, there was, um, so my friend Emer Lang, we were all doing medicine together. We were going into fifth year of medicine at Trinity and Emer was in the group on Una who sang with the original Riverdance that was that performed at the Eurovision Song Contest. So Emer was part of that group and she sang. She she spent every minute that she was in studying singing with Anuna and she performed on stage with Riverdance the first time it was ever seen right. by the world at the Eurovision Song Contest. And the next year was very tricky for her because she was going into her final med and she had to decide whether to go on tour with Riverdance or to stay and do her finals. And her sister was also in the ba- in Anuna and her sister decided she was going to give up physiotherapy and head off travelling and she toured for five years and had a brilliant time and Emer stayed behind to do medicine. So um, so there yeah. So that was Riverdance. So we were in, I was in fifth year medical school when Riverdance came out. So my Irish dancing was well before yeah. that. It, so it, it wasn't as much fun. But it is hard to, it is hard to sort of, because it's such a, well-known global brand oh it right? is it is now and it's hard to to really get across to people how unfashionable uncool um sort of conservative it always yeah. seemed i mean yeah. i mean saying that like those are all bad things they're not but yeah. you know but that's it, how it, it seemed that's how it seemed to me as a young fellow you know? and that, that's true it was it was just a tradition it was kind of like if it was in your family you'd be expected to do it um and Although my parents didn't do it, my uncle Vincent was a very good Irish dancer and he danced, well, I think probably until he retired from work. And my cousins and Oma danced. So I think that's how I got into it. But um, but yes, it was very much a tradition. You just did it. It's interesting as well that, you know, from the vantage point of where I am now, I think, thank God people actually kept, kept those things in existence you know what I mean yeah, it would have been so easy for those to, to just expire yeah, like yeah. and and I mean Riverdance just gave it a whole new life Lisa life and now it's you know popular all over the world it's right. fantastic to see it it really is right. yeah so let's have a another tune yes what do you what do you want to do my, well, my second tune I suppose I'll play um, a Donegal tune so um, although I came to the fiddle after school I really didn't start playing Irish music until after university, believe it or not. Um, at school I played, yeah, at school I played the viola and I played in an orchestra. So I played classical music, but I kept Irish dancing right through until my, I was about 15. So I kept, you know, um, I still had a love of Irish music through that. Um, but it wasn't until I moved to Belfast that I got myself a, a fiddle and decided I'd go and play it. So one of the things I did with some of the friends I met in Belfast was we, we'd go to the Glen Columkill School of Irish Music which happened every year, happens every year in this really small town called Glencolmkill in Donegal, in the very northwest tip. And fiddlers from all over the country, in fact, outside Ireland as well, people come to learn the fiddle and you go to classes during the week. Um, and then in the evenings, you just play in sessions. And we were treated to some fantastic tunes by local musicians. So the tune I'm going to play now is um, one that was played by Johnny Doherty, who was a very famous Irish fiddle player from that region. Um, and he had a style of his own, but it was very, a very Donegal style. So, um, you know, lots of staccato notes, not too much slurring. Um, 
that's a double stopping when you're playing on the two strings at the same time and uh, it's just a really lovely style so I, I fell in love with the Donegal style of playing up there and uh, went back a couple of times to their fiddle school so so this is one of the tunes that uh, Johnny Doherty plays and I'm not sure if I've got the name of it have I got the name of it no but anyway alright and uh, yeah we'll give it a go so it's a real yeah And it is very particular to that part of the country. And what, do you know what attracted <clears throat> attracted you to that rather than other things that you were hearing? Was it just because of that moment in Glen Columkill where you, you know, when you have an amazing mm. sort of experience in a particular place when you're, especially when you're young and you're kind yeah. of... I think it was the first time I'd actually gone away specifically to learn Irish music. And, and there was about... I think it was four of us, myself and three friends, three guard friends from Belfast, just went over. And we didn't know what to expect and we hadn't been to it. A lot of kids that play Irish music in Ireland grow up going to things like this over the summer holidays because there's um, music schools all over Ireland. But I hadn't done that as a child or a teenager. So it was my first experience of it and I was blown away. It was just by the power of having so many fiddles in one place. There was a pub there that used to run sessions every night and there might have been about 50 people playing fiddles. And all playing the same tune and then moving on to the next tune. And it was just amazing. I just I just fell in love with that style, really, you know. Um, that um, I think I mentioned um, when we were talking to David Game from Canberra mm. uh, a few weeks back about a CD called The Brass Fiddle, oh, yeah. which, yeah. <laughs> which I, I came across when I was working in Scotland. And I remember listening to that for the first time, which is all Donegal yes. tunes and mm. being... It was it was like I don't know it was like being dunked in a bath of cold water. It was, like, <laughs> it was just very kind of like whoa, what what yes. is this? It's, yes, it's it's uh, it's very different. It's different. Um, it's raw. It's kind of you know it's it's raw style of music. It it felt I mean in in a way it felt very authentic and yeah. I mean that's kind of a cheap word to use now because I don't yeah. don't even know what that means but like un unfancy unmediated it was kind yes. of rough and ready recording. And the playing itself was rough and ready yeah. and the tuning was a bit rough and it was kind of... And it's not, there's not too many ornamentals. And you get you know, quite a lot of triplets and things, but not too many ornament, you know, it's not ornamented very much. Right. And I think the style has been like that for generations. So when you were learning a tune like that, are you really yeah. conscious of trying to make sure that you don't let any of those things slip in? Because it's easy to sort of... Yeah, smooth out the rough edges. Right? Yes, but no, I think because you learn it in that style... You keep playing it in the same style. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, the style that I learn to tune in is the way I'll keep playing it. Mm-hmm. You know. So who were the other who were the other people who you were listening to at that time that were getting? I mean, who 
Who else got you into the fiddle? What got me into the fiddle, I... So when I was at university, I didn't play music at all. I didn't. Even, I went to university in Dublin, and I didn't even listen to Irish music. I didn't and you were go. studying medicine. Yeah, so I was studying medicine, and I didn't even go to a pub to listen to Irish music. I sort of moved away from it. I think I probably didn't have enough. I didn't have time really. You know, it was a pretty intensive course, but we did go to pubs, but only to drink. We didn't really go to the Irish pubs. Um, so I didn't play any music, and I didn't do any dancing while I was at college in Dublin. Then I moved to Belfast. Um, so when I when I finished college, I moved to Belfast to do my GP training, and I got given a fiddle. So somebody gave me a fiddle, and they said, "Oh, you know, I have this, and I know you play. So um, here's a fiddle." And I'd never actually played a violin before. I'd only played the viola, which is slightly different. Um, so I thought, "Great, I'll give it a go." And I knew a few tunes, so I tried to you know play a few myself. And then I thought, "Well, I'm going to learn how to play this." So I found out that there were Irish music lessons in the Crescent Arts Centre in Belfast. Lots of different instruments. So I went along and I thought, well, I'm not a beginner, but I'll go to the intermediate classes because I don't know how to play Irish music on a violin or on a fiddle. So um, so I went along to the intermediate classes, which were taught by an American guy called Martin Dowling. And after a few weeks, I realised it was, it was probably, you know, a bit, it was probably a bit easy for me. So I moved myself up to the advanced class and they, those classes were being taught by Donal O'Connor from um, Dundalk, is he from Dundalk? From Dundalk, yeah. So, um, so this young fellow, I mean, I was probably, I was only in my twenties. He was probably just in his twenties and he was teaching. And, and who, who was he for the benefit mm-hmm. of? So, so Donal O'Connor is, um, he comes from a place in Ireland called Dundalk in the south of Ireland. And he comes from a very long line of musicians and fiddle players. His father's Jerry O'Connor. His granny was Rose O'Connor. So he'd been playing the fiddle since he was no height. Um, <clears throat> and at that stage, I think he may still have been studying in Belfast. But he was certainly playing a lot of music. He was playing sessions and he was teaching music. And since then, he's just gone on to, you know, be in lots of bands and record albums. And um, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. So he was teaching and I met this bunch of girls and a couple of fellas who were all learning Irish music. Um, and at the time I didn't know that many people because I had just recently moved to Belfast from Dublin. So I didn't know that many people in Belfast. So I got really friendly with this this bunch. And as we got a bit better, Donald then said to us, you know, I play a session after the class on a Thursday. I go down to a session in a wee pub called The Blackthorn in Belfast and it's not there anymore. It was a wee old pub. And he used to leave after the classes and go down to play in the session. And at some stage during the year, um, and we thought it was great that he'd actually said to us that we could come down and join in the session if we wanted. So we thought, that's great, we've made it now. He's not embar- He wouldn't be embarrassed if we came down. So, so he said, if you just want to come down and listen or feel free to join in, I go down and play a session every Thursday night. So myself and my new friends used to go down. So there was Olivia and Roisin and Marie and uh, Donald's cousin actually was in um, in the class as well and a fellow called Simon. And we used to go down on a Thursday after the music class and occasionally we'd be brave enough to join in or what Donald would do is he'd play a tune that he knew that he taught us and that we knew fairly well. So he'd play that tune and look over as if say, come on, you can join in now. So we'd join in and that was my first experience of playing in a session. So I was in my mid-twenties and it was the first time I was actually in a session playing. So um, w- What was it like? It was great. It was absolutely fantastic. 
it just felt great to be playing tunes and you know that everybody knew so before that I didn't know you know where will I play these tunes I just was playing learning the tunes because I liked them but to play, playing a session was a great it's a great buzz you know and actually to think that somebody's playing a tune because they know that you know it and you could join in was a really nice feeling that, that is a nice thing yeah, that, yeah. yeah. so there's a, yeah and I mean since then I haven't really I haven't really stopped apart from when I don't have time but I still love playing in sessions mm-hmm. what were you doing then um, so you went to Dublin and you did medicine mm-hmm. had you graduated then by the, by the time you were moving to Belfast yeah so I worked for a year in Dublin as an intern and then when I moved to Belfast so I decided at that stage that I wanted to be a GP and after our first year working a lot of people were moving off some people were going to America some people came to Australia I thought um, that you know I'd probably I'd be happy enough sticking around. So, and I had a few friends from school who went to university in Queens in Belfast. So I thought I'd have a go here. So I applied for a GP training scheme and got into that right. and started, moved to Belfast. And uh, what was it like going to Dublin from Strabane? Did you have expectations? So and I'm, I'm asking this partly as mm. just somebody who came from the north yeah. and ideas you have about the south. Um, and then the actuality of being there. I mean, I don't know how familiar mm. you were with not at all. Dublin or the south? No, I wasn't familiar at all. So my um, my summer holidays were spent in Donegal. So my parents had a caravan and we literally just went to Donegal. We didn't go too far. So I had never been to Dublin before St. Patrick's weekend of my final year at school. Myself and my friend Ita went to Dublin because her sister was managing the Westbury Hotel at the time. And she said, girls, if you want to come to Dublin, come down for the weekend so and I was 18 so it was probably the first time my parents let me go away for a weekend but knowing that we were staying with Ita's big sister so we had we spent St Patrick's weekend in Dublin the let my final year of school and it was the best weekend I had ever had to that point in my life <laughs> it was amazing it was just so busy there was people everywhere there was music everywhere we could stand up till you know the early hours we had a great time and after that I said Ita I'm applying to go to Dublin do you want to go to Dublin to college so she didn't she went to Wales but so I applied at that stage to go to Dublin, but by the time I decided, it was too late to post my application to go to the colleges in Ireland. So I'd already posted an application for Belfast, for Jordanstown and for England. And then when I came home, I said to my parents, I think I want to go to Dublin to college. And, uh, and they said, well, well, you better get the form in. So I found the form, filled it out and realised that it had to be in three days from then. So my mum drove me to Sligo. My mum and dad drove me to Sligo to hand in the form and it was um I can't remember the so the I can't remember the name of the form but it was a different form for the south of Ireland so I handed it in on the Friday took a day off school to drive to Sligo to hand my form in and then I was offered a place in Trinity so I was delighted yeah so most of my friends went to Belfast I only knew two other girls that were going to Dublin one was going to a different university and one was doing English so I pretty much went on my own but I was very excited because I just wanted to go to Dublin did you have any sense of um, the political, I mean obviously you have a sense of the political no. history of it, but like the history <laughs> of it compared to no, where you were ever. coming from in the north and the... Not really, no. Because I remember going down, the first time I went down to Dublin, being amazed at seeing pictures of people like James Connolly on the wall of a bookshop yeah. or on the, uh, on the wall of a pub and thinking, yeah. oh these... these <laughs> These these people aren't aren't outlaws, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It was just like, oh, this yeah. is a whole kind of inversion of the, the um, culture that you, that you kind of grew up in, with, mm-hmm. which was kind of saturated with these ideas, these other ideas of 
um, who's worthy of having their poster and all. Yeah, no, I have to say I wasn't political at all. Uh, So, no, didn't really mean much to me. But I was used to spending summers in Donegal, which was... But you weren't growing up in Strabane as well. I mean, Strabane was uh, not Ballycastle, right? Ballycastle, Mm. there wasn't much happened, but Strabane was very active during the troubles. It was quite a troubled town, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And I would have known people whose brothers maybe were involved in in things and, and were getting into trouble. Um, but I suppose I just my, I, I don't know whether maybe my parents just didn't talk about it they just wanted to keep us sort of unaware of it but we didn't talk politics and we just got on with it you know and you just got used to hearing about things What were, you, what were your parents' background like your yes, dad what did what did your dad do for work? So my dad was a he was a joiner by trade so he taught at the local um, training centre which I suppose is like a TAFE right. over here so he taught joinery and my mum was a primary school teacher and she taught in the same school all of her career. Um, she taught primary one in a boys', prim- boys primary school, um, St Mary's Boys Primary School. And she taught pretty much in the same classroom mm-hmm. for her entire career, which doesn't happen anymore. Um, but that was their background. The background was in teaching. Were they happy mm-hmm. to, to see you go to Dublin? No. Uh, no. My dad said, that's far too far for us to drive and I don't think my car would be safe in Dublin. And mum was just afraid of how, how expensive it was going to be to live in Dublin. So I was told I had to get a job. But um, I don't think they were unhappy about it. And in fact, you know, they did come down to visit me quite a lot. I hardly ever went home because I was having such a good time. I would love to see some empirical figures about car crime in Dublin <laughs> in that period. Because all through my kind of the later part of my youth and into my 20s, mm. getting your car nicked in Dublin was like... It was like a certainty. It was like you're gonna if you go to Dublin, your car something's gonna happen to your car. It was the thing that people always said. You know, it was like. I mean, joyriding must have taken off in Dublin before it took off in Belfast. I don't know, but they were afraid of driving to Dublin. You know. But Um, but I think my father was afraid of the free state drivers as well. He said they just didn't know how to drive down there. Yeah. (laughs) Never mind the roads. The roads. The roads. I know. So anyway, I never. I wasn't driving at that stage. I got the bus, and I got a bike. I bought a bicycle. Mm-hmm. So I cycled around Dublin. So what what was it like? What was Dublin like? Dublin was fantastic. I loved it. I loved mm-hmm. every minute of it. Mm-hmm. It was busy. It was bustly. Um, I got a job and uh, got quite a lot of jobs. My first job. So I had part time jobs and so did a lot of the the um, so did a lot of the students. So my first job was in second year at college and it was in Bewley's Cafe oh, right. on Grafton Street because I got um, my second year at college. I um, lived in rooms in Trinity. So I lived in Trinity College in the centre of Dublin, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And so um, myself and my flatmate got jobs in Bewley's Cafe on Saturday morning um, every week. It was great because your friends would just come in and say hello. And uh, at the end of the day, any of the buns that weren't sold, you got to take as many home as you wanted. So we made lots of friends. Free year. buns. Yeah. Free buns. Everybody would call in Saturday night after the pub. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was great. I loved Dublin. It was, mm. you know, just really fun place to be mm-hmm. and what was the what was the academic work like was it quite easy not easy for you but like how demanding was it well the good thing about it was that is that we spent a lot of time in lectures and at tutorials and practicals so we did most of our work in the daytime and didn't have that much to do in the evening apart from coming up to exams whereas a lot of my friends who did law or english seemed to have a lot of studying to do in the libraries so we did a lot of it just by we learned a lot just by going to lectures 
you know. So, um, but I enjoyed it. It was challenging at times, and there was a lot of work coming up to exams, and there was practical exams and oral exams, which I didn't like much. But, um, but yeah, and a lot of you know, I was friends with a lot of the girls in my class, so we were all doing the same thing. So we worked hard when we had to, and then partied hard when we could. And, and so that was f- how many years? So six years. Studying and then there was like a pre-registration year which you were encouraged to do at where you studied. Mm. So I did my intern year in Dublin as well. So seven years all up in so, Dublin. So uh, when you when you go back to Dublin now, do you mm. have a does it Is have it a glow for you? Like yes, I'm very nostalgic about Are Dublin. You? Yeah, I love it. I still love going back to Dublin and yeah. wandering through Trinity. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I, I can't imagine the, what that must have been like, right? To because yeah. um, it's such an iconic place and. Uh, name you know yeah. what I mean and the thing about it if you lived in Trinity in the rooms they locked the gates at 12 o'clock and you had a key and it was this massive key and there was always gu- there was guards on every door so the gates were closed so Trinity has gates uh, walls it's a walled university um, it has about four gates they all got locked at midnight and you only got in if you lived in there so you couldn't bring guests in un- unbooked you know if you wanted somebody to stay say your friend or your family were coming down you had to pre-book them in that week, you couldn't just turn up with somebody and say they're staying. They weren't allowed. So you'd go in through the gates and, you know, it was in the middle of Dublin. So there's like all this noise and traffic and there's traffic going around it all the time and hustle and bustle. And horses and carriages used to go around it. And you'd go inside and they'd close the door and it'd be total silence. So it was really, really quiet inside the walls. So it was lovely. you just walk through in deadly silence to your room. Yeah. yeah. Unless you met a few drunk students, you know. They'd be a bit noisy, but and they used to have a ball every year within the gates, and the gates would be locked for the ball, and you had to have a ticket to get in. So, yeah, it was nice. It was a lovely experience to spend mm. the year living there. Mm. So, how did Belfast compare then when you when you moved up to Belfast? Yeah, it was totally different. Um, I once heard. I think I heard. Um, I think it was Michael Longley, the the poet, talk about um, how he he always preferred Belfast to Dublin. He always preferred Glasgow to Edinburgh. And he ah. made that sort of comparison, yeah. you know. He always preferred the, kind the more, of more industrial, stuff, more, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Which suppose, gonna... When I moved to Belfast, it was really sort of taking off and, and opening up. I mean, before I moved up, I know that, you know, the like city centre would have been closed. Say when Jerry, my husband, was growing up there. You know, you couldn't, you wouldn't have gone into city centre after five o'clock because nothing was open. Um, but by the time I moved up, there were you know, cafes opening up and people were going into city centre and there were more pubs and nightclubs. So it was a pretty happening place when I moved up. Um, and I had a few friends from school who I mm. sort of reconnected with. So, um, yeah, it was so, different, but I liked it. Yeah. So you start going to the Blackthorn and you're going to these evening classes. and Yeah, so I did that. And, um, you know, the, and then I discovered there were sessions in other pubs. Now, some of the other sessions were a lot more advanced and faster so I just went along to listen but I sat along and listened you know sat and listened to a lot of sessions and who who were the some of the people who were playing in those sessions who were the kind of mainstays that would be there that were the the revered oh, figures you okay. know okay so so Donald would play at quite a few of them um I'm trying to think now I can sort of visualize people um I started going, started, well, no, uh, later on I started going to, um, there was a session in the Hercules, which was a, a bar that you go to after all the other bars had closed, and um, Jason O'Rourke, who's a concertina player, used to sort of lead a session there. Um, 
Okay, so Madden's pub was one that I used to, I started going to. So my friend Marie, who was in my fiddle class, her um, older sister, Deirdre Shannon, used to play there. Um, so we'd go there on a Tuesday night. Did she marry Kieran Carson? She was married to Kieran Carson, yeah, right. who sadly just passed away there right. recently. Yeah, so yeah. Deirdre and Kieran would have been there nearly every Tuesday night. At Madden's, Madden. which is another wee pub in the city centre, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these pubs were like tiny little pubs in the city centre. You'd hardly notice them, and mostly the doors were closed. And Deirdre Shannon was a flute player. She's is a, a flute. She's player. a fiddle player. Oh, she's a fiddle player. She's a fiddle player. Kieran was a flute player. There were quite a lot of fiddle players at that session, and people that have, would have played through the years with Deirdre and Kieran. You know, mm-hmm. but the funny thing about sessions is sometimes you don't get to know people's names. You might go for weeks and weeks without knowing the names of the people you're playing with. Mm-hmm. But you just sort of nod and say hello and hook you here again, you know. Away you go. Yeah, anyway yeah. you go, join in. Yeah. So, should, should we have another tune? Yeah. Yeah. What do you fancy doing? So, I'll, um, this one's got a bit of a funny story attached. So, just going back to Glenn Colum Kill and the fiddle school. I loved it so much that I wanted to go back um, another year. So, again, myself and my group of friends traipsed up the second year. And um, so, what happened was if you could play your instrument and you weren't learning from from scratch you weren't a total beginner they would ask you to come and play a tune for the tutors so it'd be maybe three or four tutors so they'd be the fiddle tutors and they say come in and play a tune and we'll put you in the class that we think you're best suited to you could move around if you wanted but it was for the week so you'd actually go to classes for the week so I had heard this beautiful tune called Gronya's Jig written by Tommy Peoples so sadly Tommy has passed away as well but he was a fiddle player from St Johnson in Donegal which was just down the road from Straban and I'd heard this tune and I just loved it and learnt it. And I said, well, I'll play that because it's my, you know, it's the tune I really like at the minute. So um, so I'd all set up and I'd been practising and I went in and um, there were four fiddle tutors there and I didn't really know any of them. So I played the tune and I came out and somebody said to me, oh, that was, that was Siobhan Peoples that was sitting there. That was Tommy Peoples' daughter. And I thought, oh, God, I hope I did that justice. I hope I played that tune well enough because, you know, I don't know who the tune was written for, but quite possibly he wrote it for his daughter. Mm-hmm. So so I was a bit mortified and I thought, oh God, please let me get into the class now. I hope, hope she did, doesn't think it... Did you get in? I did, I got in, yeah. Really? yeah. Well, must have been right, so this <laughs> is Grania's jig. So this is Grania's jig. Thank you. 
So Tommy Peoples was the first fiddle player with a body band, wasn't he? he was I'm not sure. I think he was. I yeah. So we're in Belfast. We're in Belfast. We're playing, playing sessions. sessions. Yeah. So I. It was kind of my social life for a while because, um, you know, although I was working, I was working in hospitals and I moved jobs every six months. So and I was living on my own. So at, um, at some point, all the girls in the rental house were all, you know, we were going off buying houses and moving in with boyfriends and things. And I thought, right, I better buy myself a house. So I bought a wee house, two up, two down on the lower Ravenhill Road, which is quite a Protestant part of Belfast, um, just bordering East Belfast. But, you know. Property was getting expensive at that time, so I found this little house and thought, this is a really nice wee house, nice quiet street. So I bought my house, moved in, and um, our fiddle lesson was on Thursday, and Donald would always ask us to play the tune he'd taught us the previous week, and he'd sometimes ask you to play it in twos or threes, so you had to practice. So um, a group of us used to get together on a Tuesday night and practice in my house. And then this just got bigger and bigger, and we, we started, you know, People would bring along maybe a wee bottle of wine and mince pies at Christmas and, you know, we'd have a few snacks and everything. So it got bigger and bigger to the point where at one stage it was maybe about eight out of the class coming to my house on a Tuesday night to practice the tunes so that we up to scratch on Thursday. So that if Donald asked us to play, we'd be able to play it and we'd get invited back to the Blackthorn. So anyway, they got named the Chalk Trosses Sessions, which is in Irish is Tracy's House. So we, we called them the Chalk Trosses Sessions. <laughs> and we used to play Irish music in the middle of a wee Protestant Street in East Belfast every Tuesday night. So did any any? So did you know your neighbours there? Well, I knew my neighbours, and they were all lovely. And they all said, "Oh, we like we like listening to your tunes." So and a week, oh, very old couple lived next door, Sissy and Jordy, and they used to say, "We love listening to your tunes on a Tuesday night." And then around that time, I met Jerry McCaig, who's now my husband, sitting across from us here, who was just playing guitar. And so I said, "God, I've," and I said to the the girls. And um, and a couple of the fellas, I said, you know, I've met this this fella and he plays guitar. Should I invite him along to the sessions? And they said, oh, God, that'd be great. You know, because we were all fiddle players and I thought it'd be nice to have a bit of backing, you know. So the first night I brought Jerry along. Um, I said, you come along, you know, do you mind bringing your guitar? Join in. He said, no, that's fine. Yeah, that's nice. And introduced. So he, um, we had already started the playing the session before he arrived. So he drove up and he came in and he, he was like, you know, you really, you really should keep your windows closed. You know, this is a Protestant street. Because you're belting out the Irish music, I think you should close your windows. And he was a bit, you know, if this was growing up in Belfast, he was a little bit, you know, more aware of it. And I was like, right. no, my neighbours love it. And he was like, oh, God, I wouldn't be so sure, you know. Anyway, he joined in. So uh, where did you meet? So we met at, uh, it was a bit of a get-together by, um, so I knew Jerry's friend, Simon. And he was having a bit of a get-together in his house because his friend Jerry was coming home from Australia. So Jerry had spent a year in Australia. He's also a doctor and he spent a year working in Australia. And he was coming back and his friend Simon was throwing a bit of a barbecue at his house for Jerry. And he talked Jerry up so much. He's like, you have to meet this guy. He's brilliant. He's just, he's just amazing. He's a great fella. And he talked him up and talked him up. So much that when I met Jerry, I was like, God, he really is a great fella, isn't he? <laughs> so, um... Jerry, you're blushing over there. <laughs> so I made a, made a point of sitting beside Jerry all night. And I was like, he is pretty cool, all right. You know, I can see what Simon was talking about. You know, so I kind of had a wee notion of Jerry from that night. But then I didn't see him again for months and months. So I was sort of hoping I'd bump into him again around Belfast. But so we met that night and then I didn't see him again for a long time. And then um, 
I told my friends about him. I said, you know, I've met this guy, Jerry, but I don't know where he is or anything. And then my friends who were nurses at the Children's Hospital in Belfast came to me one day and they said, that fella, Jerry, you were talking about, I think he's working in casualty in the Children's Hospital. I think this is him. What's his name? What does he look like? Yes, that's him. They said, we're going to invite you to the Children's Hospital Christmas ball, Christmas ball and he'll probably be there. So anyway, the rest is history. I'm, I went along to the ball and cornered Jerry again and that was it. Uh-huh. Got him to ask me out for a pint. And we did it for a pint in um, the Rotter, no, like, Pats Bar. Pats Bar. So we went for a couple of pints in Pats Bar and that was it. God rested. And it's gone as well, yeah. Pats Bar's gone as well. Not flattened. They knocked all these old bars to the ground. So, yes, so we met that way. And then we bonded through music. Well, see, Jerry was much more advanced in the sessions than I was because he'd been playing Irish music for a long time and he'd been going to sessions and playing his guitar at sessions for a long time so um, I think I probably started going to more sessions to listen to Jerry playing um, and then maybe started going to the music festivals with Jerry as well so I think definitely it, it helped for that both of us played music but so we had a great year in Belfast just playing a lot of music and going to sessions and, you know, didn't really have any responsibilities other than getting to work in the morning. And then we decided to come to Australia. And so... Together? Yes, together. So we'd finished our GP training. He, since he came back, you know, when he came back from Australia, he talked about going, coming back to Australia. So I said, right, OK, well, you know, we'll go back when we qualify. So we qualified as GPs and it was easier to go then with your, you know, with our qualification so um, to cut a long story short, we did end up coming to Australia and living in Bright in northeast Victoria. We wanted to come to Melbourne. And, and were you married at this point? No. Yeah. So we were, we'd been going out for about two years at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd only briefly moved in together for convenience sake. We were renting out our houses, moved in briefly together, decided we were coming to Australia. And we we realised that we couldn't work in Melbourne. We both wanted to come to Melbourne, but we couldn't work in Melbourne because if you're an overseas trained GP, the government here, the health board wanted you to work in an area of need, so we had to go to the countryside. So we found two jobs, one in Myrtleford and one in Bright, and we moved there. And there was absolutely no music up there. There were two small country towns. So there wasn't, there was bush music, but there wasn't much Irish music. So, um, so we found ourselves in a small town Living together, not much to do in the evenings, looking at each other. We could only watch so many box sets and drink so much wine before Jerry sort of said, we should probably learn some tunes. And and that he made me practice tunes because I never really bothered. I'm, I'm a very lazy player. I'll just play tunes, I know, without learning new ones. But So he made me learn sets. So we played music in the evenings. So, so the the lesson is, if you want to really dedicate yourself to your <laughs> instrument, move to a country town where there's nothing else to do. There's nothing to do. That was it. It was dark at night. People used to go to bed at eight o'clock. The gym closed at six o'clock. You know. Oh God, it sounds like where I live. So, so we play. We were playing all this music, and uh, and Jerry was like, we should, you know, I wonder what there, what else there is to do. So he was on a. <laughs> When we moved here a couple of years ago, I remember, so so we lived down on the coast, yeah. south of Geelong, and I remember mm. going out, you know, we'd been here for a, like a week or something, and it was Sunday night, I thought, I'm mm. about for a pint, you know, and I went out, and I swear to God, the tumbleweed, no, just, uh, it was it was like six o'clock as well, it was six o'clock in the evening, it wasn't even, uh-huh. you know, I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll 
just go home again then. So kind of. Well, that was it. So we were desperate, you know. So we right. played tunes. So and Jerry was on a um, a website or a site called thesession.org, which is like a worldwide Irish music session. So in desperation, one night he just put in any tunes in Northeast Victoria. And and how long did it take? About 30, About 30 seconds, we got a reply back from Jamie Malloy going, yes, I'm in Corrion. <laughs> Are you Irish? And he's like, yes. Yeah. So, so, so Jerry, that's how you came across Jamie. You came across Jamie, Jamie Malloy. Session.org. Right. So he contact. So he got so, back and said, yes, tell me about yourself. So we can't, you know. So Jamie just is a singer. Yeah. He's a concertina player. He's um, episode singer. three of the Planet Pilgrims. Yeah. Just, is it? Yes. <laughs> Mentions Jamie. Yeah. So... Soon after that, Jamie, we arranged to meet him. So he said, well, look, I'm coming to... So he lived in Coryong, um, which was a bit of a drive away from Bright, but he was coming to the Beechworth Celtic Festival shortly after that, which is in October, I think, every year. And we said, great, we'll meet up with you. So we went along, took our tent. I think it might have been one of our first camping trips in Australia and um, met Jamie in Beechworth and uh, with Ian Simpson. He was with him that weekend. We met Ian and... Played in sessions and I thought, great, this is it. And Jerry was in seventh heaven. He said, great, I've found music in Australia. And, and did uh, you have the same sense, or was it was it less kind of uh, critical for you? I think it was. Yes, I think it was less critical. But I I liked the social aspect of it. I liked just the fact that we were getting out of Brighton, meeting people because there weren't too many people my age who weren't married with kids. So I didn't really have a peer group at all when I lived in Bright. So um, so it was nice to just get away and meet other other people, other musicians, and yeah. So and that was that was it. Then Jamie told us about all these other music festivals that were happening. So it was like another world. It was like discovering a world that you didn't know of folk festivals in Australia. So they were in Victoria. We went to some in New South Wales, you know, and it sort of opened up a social. You know, another social network for us. Um, and now Jerry lived in Melbourne for a year before that, and he'd met musicians there, so we were able to. He was able to reconnect with them in Melbourne and at these festivals. So, yeah, so that's what we spent our summers doing. Mm. And were you feeling? Um, how were you feeling about your own plan? Do you, can you think about that now? Are you even conscious of what you were, or were you just kind of having was, a, having a good time? And fun. I was just having fun. I would just play, and pick up tunes just by playing at sessions. And if there was a tune I particularly liked, I might, you know, try to learn it better. But I pretty much just picked them up at the sessions and the more I played them, um, the more, the better I got at them, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, still tried to play the tunes that I learned in Belfast. I tried to always, you know, keep keep playing them um, as well. So, yeah. Um, something that I've, I've, I think we talked about was Jerry early on and... Um, Jerry was the first person I think we recorded for this project for mm. the the podcast, and we talked about playing tunes that remind you of people and places where you were when you learn when you learned them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that Tommy Peoples. Yeah. Tune. Yeah. It's it's a very kind of powerful thing. Yeah. Um. We I think I we learned a lot of tunes from Jamie actually, and um, when we were in the you know the full swing of playing at the music festivals um i don't know whose idea it was but at one point um we met a girl from ireland as well called um caroline what's caroline's name caroline frawley i'm terrible with names caroline frawley she was um, a box player and um at one point we were all playing together and we'd sometimes play a few tunes at one of the festivals up on stage you know open mic sort of things and we formed a little band 
and then we put our names forward and played at a few folk festivals. So we called ourselves Fretwork, and we learned quite a lot of tunes from Jamie. Um, at the you know to play in the band, and it was, and then we'd sing a few songs as well. And um, that so that, that was it was great fun. It was really good fun, really good fun. Yeah, yeah. So um, Jamie just had lots of lots of tunes, lots of songs, and he just loved us learning them and joining in with him. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And and did you do much singing at that time? Were you started? Well, that, that's probably when I started singing because I didn't really sing before that, apart from at mass. So I sang at mass and I sang in the choir at college. But I'd never really sang Irish tune, Irish songs, until I came to Australia. So I would have. I, That's I, interesting. Yeah. So I. What's, what's probably, that about? Probably the odd one, but not in public. I mean, I, I remember um, when I was living in Belfast before I met Jerry. Um, I was living with um, a couple actually, and the fellow Paddy Oliver loved Irish music. He didn't play anything, but he loved Irish music and he loved going to pubs and listening. And he had a friend called Tracy Diamond, who was a gorgeous singer. So I used to love listening to her singing. Um, and I, I learned a couple of the songs that she sang, but could never sing them as well as her. So I didn't sing them in public, but I did enjoy it. So I think when I came to Australia and realised that people just get up and sing, you know, you just learn a song, get up and sing it. Um, I thought, yeah, I'll start singing. So I did start singing songs then. So, so you felt less self-conscious here than you did in Ireland? Yes, probably, probably. And probably because I was a bit older as well. You know, in your 20s, you're, you're always a bit more self-conscious, I think. I think probably didn't. I was a bit more relaxed here about it. And and the fact that people would just go, get, you know, it was an easy thing to do. Everybody encouraged you to sing songs, you know. I, I, I find that interesting too. Like, it took me till I was in my 30s, but to start singing and then mm-hmm. I was just it was just because I was pissed off of being the only person who could Not. play around with people I was hanging about with but mm-hmm. I couldn't get through a song from one end to the other and I just got so frustrated at the end yeah. I was like to start gotta learn some songs yeah, you know? yeah. So, and it's it, there's nothing better than singing. I, know, I love it. It is and it's always well received it doesn't matter if you're not a good singer and it doesn't matter if you forget the words people just enjoy hearing songs now they do in Ireland as well. I just think at the time I was more into playing the tunes. Mm. Whereas over here, you know, there's people singing songs of all from all parts of the world. Um, you know, English sea shanties and English folk songs and um, you know, sometimes accompanied, sometimes um sometimes on their own. So did you like Australia then when you came here? I loved it. I loved it from the moment I came here. Yeah. What, why? What was what about it? I don't know, I think it's just that the attitude of the people there's a real kind of anything goes attitude you know whatever you want to do you can you can do it um people seem to be less judgmental here than in ireland probably just comes from ireland being such a small country people i think my impression was that people are you know they're quicker to judge you whereas over here and maybe it's because there are people in australia from everywhere that the people that live here are more open to hearing things and you know having people do things um so i just enjoyed the the freedom of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Should we have another tune? Yeah. Um, so the this set of tunes is actually um, they're actually mazurkas, which are sometimes you know, played in Ireland, not commonly, but sometimes. Um, but these are actually Canadian mazurkas. But I heard these tunes on an album um, by a band called At the Racket. Um, so Johnny Carty uh, is a 
musician who plays the fiddle and the banjo and Seamus O'Donnell um, and he plays these on the saxophone the ta- and they're called the Tax Max Mazurkas and I just loved them from the first moment I heard them and I decided to learn them um, and I did and then I persuaded Jerry to play along with me so so these are the Tax Max Mazurkas <laughs> Max Mazurkas. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you go from Bright? So we were there for about three years um, and um, I was getting on a bit at that stage. I was... Um, <laughs> What's that uh, mean? Well, I was over 30. <gasps> I know. And Jerry's a bit younger than me. 
and he was having a great old time. He was uh, he was working in the Bright Medical Centre with um, a few other male GPs who were all um, you know into mountain biking and skiing, and and he was having a great old time. Whereas um, I was feeling the pressure of the years a little bit. And friends back in Ireland were getting married, and I thought, you know what? I think maybe now it's time to get married. So I put the word out to Jerry. You know, dropped a few hints and things, and. Um, at that stage, I thought, well, if he's not going to marry me, I'm going to move back to Ireland. He can stay here if he wants, you know. So pretty much put the feelers out and thought, well, what are you going to do, Jerry? You know, what's the plans from here? So he was like, oh, you know, it's it's great here. We're enjoying it. We're having a good life and all, you know. Anyway, he tried a few times to ask me to marry him. That's a bit of a long story. But um, to cut that story short, he had a few sort of attempts at asking me to marry him, but was put off by things that happened and he got a bit superstitious and he thought, oh God, this is not the right time, you know. Um, and then he decided that he would ask me to marry him at Nariel Creek Folk Festival, which is a place we'd gone to a couple of years in a row and it happens between Christmas and New Year. It's apparently one of the oldest folk festivals in Australia. So he thought, right, well, maybe that would be a good place to do it because she'll be in good form. She's quite likely to say yes. <laughs> So unbeknownst to me, he carried the ring in the pocket of his shorts the whole like, lead up to um, New Year's Eve. And uh, yeah, so he asked me to marry him on New Year's Eve at Narrow Creek Folk Festival um, in 2004, the eve of 2004. So, um, so that was great. That sort of, you know, put my mind at rest. I thought, grand, OK, then I'm going to get married. That's great. So... We sort of toyed with the idea of staying in Australia and getting married in Australia. But when we, you know, put that idea to our folks back home, the general feeling was, don't be ridiculous. You can't get married over there, so nobody would be able to come. We couldn't come over to Australia for the wedding. You'll have to come home. So that was kind of the feeling. And we thought, OK, well, we've been here about three and a half years now. Maybe we'll go back and, you know, see how it goes in Ireland. So that was what brought us back to Ireland. We went home to get married. And I think at that stage we were getting a wee bit homesick and we'd missed a couple of weddings and missed a couple of, um, you know, babies been born. And we thought, OK, well, it's a good time to probably go home. We'll get married and go home to Ireland. But we didn't really want to just go back to Belfast and settle down. So we decided we'd go somewhere else. So we went to Galway for a year. And we literally just, I think we compromised on Galway because Jerry wanted to go to Clare and I wanted to go to Dublin. So we thought, well... Jerry didn't want to go to Dublin. I didn't particularly want to go to Clare. So we compromised in Galway and we lived there for a year. And what was that like? It was great. We loved Galway. There was loads of music. So, yeah. Just, so, uh, yeah, so we spent a year just playing music in Galway um, at the weekends, mainly. And, and, and then working as doctors? And working, we worked as locums. So we worked locum. as, as locum GPs mm. all over Galway and uh, Chewham, Athenry, um, various small towns and um, by the end of that year I was pregnant so and Galway's quite a long way from Belfast I think it's the roads make it long not the actual distance as the crow flies but then at that point um, we decided to move back to Belfast yeah and then life changed after that <laughs> so then Belfast you're back in Belfast can you paint a picture for me of um, like how did you feel about going back to Belfast were you Excited about it? Or? I think I was, yeah, I think I was happy enough. I think the, the excitement was that we were having a baby. So, um, you know, that was the next chapter. And um, yeah, I think I felt like it was good to go back 
closer to home. So all of Jerry's family were living in Belfast. His parents still live in Belfast. Um, my parents lived only it was only you know an hour and forty five minute drive away. So it felt like we were, we were going back close to family because we were having our first baby. So it, it was the right. It felt like the right time to do it. Um, but it was a different different Belfast then because you know with having a baby I didn't really get out much, and I think I maybe played in one session a year. I th- I remember always going so we've we've got four kids now and I remember always going to sessions for a few weeks when I was started maternity leave and I was just about to have another baby and I'd turn up at sessions pregnant just about to have the next baby and people were like oh here you are again we haven't seen you for ages oh you're having another baby great and I'd go to about three or four sessions before the next baby was born but I really didn't play much music for the, the next you know those few years apart from at family gatherings so Jerry's family at most family gatherings end in a big session with music and singing and so that was the only place really that I got to play music or sing a song when we were in the midst of babies and nappies. And, and how were your mum and dad? It must have been nice to to have them nearby and for them to be able to come over and see you. Yeah so Jerry's mum and dad were over a lot because they lived pretty much you know only just on the other side of Belfast so they they were very involved Um my dad didn't travel very much at all, but mum used to get the bus up. And when she came up, she'd stay for, you know, a week or two weeks. And uh, that was great. Yeah, it was nice. And uh, I I actually went home quite a lot to Strabane when I had the kids. When I had, you know, when there were babies and I wasn't working. Mm-hmm. I was off maternity leave. I'd go down and stay in Strabane for, you know, weeks at a time. And it was just nice to be back at home and, you know, be able to put my feet up and sit and watch Coronation Street with my mother and... Mm-hmm. Have my dinners made. And and how did how did life in Belfast take shape then? Um, I mean, we're kind of skating over a good sort of six six years. Yeah, probably about five or six years. It's all a bit of a blur, and it was a bit hectic. It was quite hectic, really, because I was working part time. Jerry was, you know, it took a few jobs before we got settled into jobs, um, and it, yeah, it was life was pretty hectic. I have to say, we had we worked a lot. We moved house, we bought a house, moved in, you know, renovated it. Um, we were just very busy with work and we kind of, you know, depended on Jerry's family a lot to look after the kids. So I'd say it was a bit of a blur when the kids were small and starting primary school. And it, were, it, it just got to the stage where we couldn't really, you know, we felt like it was too hectic for us. And gradually Australia started to seep into our minds again and, what, what do you mean by hectic? I mean, I, I, I know sort of roughly what you mean, but... What yeah, so work-wise, I mean, I think we were, we had to work long hours. You know, in the jobs we were doing, we would have been... There was one job I was... Um, I got a job in a practice in Whitehead, which was a really lovely practice. And where's that? So that is in Antrim. So it's north of Belfast. And it took about 45 minutes to drive to it. So it's a small town on the coast north of um, Jordanstown. Um, so it was a lovely practice, lovely group of doctors to work with, but I was driving for 45 minutes every day. It was very, very busy. I was finding that I had to leave the house earlier and earlier and getting back later and later in the day. And there were two days when I worked a full day where I left the house before my youngest was awake. And when I came back, she was back in bed. So it was about two days a week when I thought, I haven't seen my baby, you know for two whole days a week. So that was that was what life was going to be like. Jerry had a job, you know, quite close to home. He worked in the University Health Centre. So he could cycle to work and back. So he tended to, you know, leave the kids to school, 
take them to daycare on the back of the bike. We had a childminder and then he'd go to work and when he came back, it was full on, getting the babies and kids, baths, ready for bed, dinner, waiting for me to come home. So that's that was how hectic it was, you know. So um, I think the highlight, the highlight of the week was when Jerry's mum would go to Marks and Spencer's and buy us dinner for two and call at our door and drop it in and say, there's your dinner, have fun, I'm away home. And she wouldn't even call in because she wouldn't want to keep us back. She'd say, I've bought you dinner. There's a dinner and there's a dessert. And, you know, if, if we were lucky, there was a bottle of wine as well. She'd say, there you go, you know, have something nice to eat. Because <laughs> she knew how busy we were. So that was it, yeah. Mm. So it was just pretty, pretty busy. And we just didn't feel like we were having a, a much fun. You know, I think I think Jerry got out to the odd session maybe on a Sunday afternoon, but not, not very much, you know. But part of that's having a young family too. Yeah, you know? and it makes it Part of that's having a young family, and, and lots of that is just the natural way of things. Like when you've got four kids under six, six, six mm. and a half, like it's going to be hectic no matter what part of the world you're living in. Yeah. It's going to be a, a hectic life, yeah. you know. That's just what it is, you know. Yeah. So something drew you back to Australia. Jerry. Jerry drew me back. <laughs> so the weather was pretty terrible as well over there, you know. <laughs> and Jerry cycled to work. It didn't bother me as much, but he cycled to work. So he'd go out in the morning. He'd say, you know, he used to say to me, oh, you know, it's quite nice this morning. And he'd go out and he'd put on his fluorescent gear and he'd get on his bike and he had quite a nice bike ride to work through Ormo Park in the Botanic Gardens up to his practice but he'd come home in the evening dripping because it, might, it would be pouring with rain he'd have come home and he'd be standing at the back door dripping he'd go what are we doing in this country so the work was busy the kids were hectic the weather was terrible and we, you know and we'd go to Donegal on our holidays like our parents did and there might be two weeks of rain that we'd book to be our holidays and he'd say what are we doing here? You know, we should just go back to Australia. So for a couple of years, every evening I would hear, what about, what about Australia? Every morning I'd be like, oh, Belfast's not too bad. And then every evening would be like, I think we should go back to Australia. What do you think? What do you think? And I just kept, you know, wearing me down. And then at some, I think it was when I had the, the full-time, practically full-time job, I thought, you know what? I think you're right. I think, I think, you know, life might be easier for us over there and the weather's definitely better. So <laughs> yeah, that was such a huge thing to think about. It was all it was almost It was almost too big to insurmountable. You know, to try and think about you know, when you when you buy a house and you invest all that energy, uh you've got your family, a young family, you're you're investing a lot of emotional energy in in the place, in the city, which provided a lot of great things for us. It does provide a lot of great things for people. Like Belfast was great in so many ways. And it's, it's still a great place to live, you know. But at the, you know, that's all we can say is at that time in our lives, it really, it just got to a stage where it felt like we needed to be somewhere else. And that's, yeah. that's I think that's the way I think of it, is that it's not like this, was, this wasn't right, that wasn't right. You know, it's just like, it, it just got, it got this really strong feeling of mm. we should be living somewhere else, having another... Another, yeah, a, a different lifestyle. Did you feel like you needed some convincing of that? I mean, I think at that stage, my my father had passed away. He so he died when Maggie, our second, was only six months. So, um, a lot of it was my feeling of guilt about leaving my family. 
you know, and I didn't really want to leave my family. I mean, actually, we, you know, we're we're very close to our families, and that was the hard thing was to say, was realizing that we'd be leaving them, and if we could have taken them all with us, it would have been fantastic, you know. So, um, I think that was the only part of me that needed convincing was the part that made me feel like I wanted to stay at home for my family. Um, but the rest of it, the lifestyle, even the work, we really enjoyed the work over here, um, and the people we met and. Uh, we knew that it would be good for us and, you know, we had enjoyed it before and we would again. And um, so, yes, I think it did take I, I did take a bit of convincing. It probably took a few years for me to get my head around the idea that we could just pack up and leave. And it did take a lot of organisation. Um, and there were times when I thought, oh, my God, is this worth it? There's too much. It's too much for me to get my head around. There's too much to organise. You know, there's too many people involved. And we were taking four grandchildren away, you know, from their grandparents. So, yeah, it, it, yeah, it was hard for me to make that decision. But once the decision was made and we were full steam ahead, then it was fine. That was the trajectory we were on. And um, then, it, you know, it got exciting as well. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds like once you've hit the critical mass and you're you're on the road that, yeah. that you're able to is that, yeah. is that right for I you I think so and I think there was just so much to organise you didn't I didn't have time to think about the reality of it and that in fact it only hit me when we were here for about six months I got homesick at six months mm. um, and it really hit me hard for a while and it, I think it was because we had settled down and I thought oh my goodness we're over here and you know this is it Here's a curious thing. So I, I really struggle with this. So this is our 25th or 26th episode of this podcast, whichever mm. 26th episode of this podcast. And um, lots of people who have talked to who are Irish who left for mm. whatever reason. And how... Uh, I don't know. How, I don't know what I'm, what I'm trying to ask here. There's something... There's something that I really I'm struggling to get with. I've only been here for a couple of years, so I'm, I'm still um, uh, raw isn't the right word, but I'm still kind of raw in the sense of just the the newness of having moved here and the mm. feeling of like certain points where it's great and I just think this is brilliant, and there's other points where I just think, where am I? <laughs> you know, um, mm. it's I don't know how to make sense of being Irish and not being there yeah. I, I haven't been there since I was 18 I've lived there since I was 18 I should say yeah. you know so so even the notion of calling myself Irish sometimes just seems completely ridiculous like do you know I think uh, uh, well I tell you I think what's made it easier for well one thing that made it easier for me was having children at a primary school because you just automatically meet people like I mean I met other mums mainly but some dads as well who were just involved in the school so I think we met quite a few of our friends doing that you know just being involved in the school but in fact we've actually met quite a lot of Irish and Scottish people here in Geelong so you know we've met a lot of other Irish musicians um, who are Irish and Scottish who have left their home countries and we regularly meet up and play sessions together so it's almost like there's We've got our Irish community here and we still keep to our roots by telling stories about Ireland, you know, talking about when we lived back there and hearing our friends' stories as well about how they got here and just playing Irish music. 
And I think I don't, I tend to kind of just get on with things and move forward and try not to dwell on being homesick. I'm a, I'm a terrible dweller on this things. Jerry's terrible. Desperate. Yeah. It, Jerry finds it hard. I think you find it harder than me, don't you, to move on. And you, you think about home more and maybe you talk, you talk to your family more probably. Yeah, but you... One analogy, and this probably isn't a very good analogy, but it's, it's a, or a, um, a metaphor. What's the word? Basically, the fact that you have children here in this country. Now, our kids were born in Ireland, but they're Aussie kids now. They've been in this in this school system for this long. It's almost like what, like the Australian waters getting in around your feet or something when your kids are in the, it's, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like when your kids are in the school, you're maintaining this identity, okay, because we want to be here, we want to be in Australia, we want to maintain our Irish heritage and culture, but then your children are bringing in this Australian life in from your feet up, mm. because you're, ch- you know, you're coming into the house, they're coming into the house, you're sharing the time together, and you're just absorbing this stuff from your feet yeah. up because your kids your kids are Australian and they're bringing it back in and the great thing is that they they know you know they know that they're Irish as well they're from Ireland and they I think they all love that yeah but they're bringing they're bringing the Australian life into our home mm-hmm. because they're coming home from school and you'll see that as well with your your kids in school it's like it's you know and then you're interacting with with the families at the school and so it's like seeping in from the bottom up in a way and it's not it's not that it's diluting your Irishness because it's not doing that either it's just adding to it in a different way mm. but definitely the, the, that like I I absolutely remember the moment back in Belfast before we'd even started to move when I I had that I'd say it was honestly speaking it was probably only about five to ten minutes of dread anticipating a moment in Australia when we'd be like oh god what have we done and we're over here now we can't go back we're trapped mm. I remember thinking that for a very short time in Belfast it was like jeez imagine if we feel this what's going to happen and that actually has never happened to us here well, I think that's what happened to me when I got well, homesick I know that at that, at that happen, point yeah. in time that's what I felt like I felt like we've made this move now we're stuck here we have to stay here you know It'd be very hard for us to go back. And I, I mean, I had never felt homesick before. And that was what it felt to me. It was like, I'm trapped here now. We've brought our family over here. We're making a life for ourselves. What have we done? And having this sense of really wanting to be back there, you know. But it didn't last for long, you know. But I think that's what it was. It was this feeling of having been, you know, being somewhere else that you didn't really belong. But... But yeah, and, um, and where are you now? So that's, that's how many years ago? So that's five years ago now, and I feel very settled here now. I feel very settled, and I feel like my Irish identity is still very strong, and I'm still able to have my Irish identity here in Australia. Um, but I don't feel homesick anymore, and I don't feel like I want to live back in Ireland at this moment in time. You know, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, but I'm I'm just yeah. I'm I'm really happy to be still involved with playing Irish music because I think because I didn't have the, you know, the craving for it that Jerry had that I could quite easily have stopped playing if I hadn't met somebody who was so interested in it and, and enjoyed it so much, you know. Yeah, that's been a good way of keeping you 
bonded. Busy. Yeah. It is. It's a good way of keeping busy. It's a good way of keeping keeping us together as well. You know, it's a thing we both enjoy doing. <laughs> well, it's it's good to have one thing that you that doesn't involve. Well, I was going to say that doesn't involve alcohol, but that's not true. It does involve alcohol. So. No, and it involves alcohol, but it and it also involves the children now as well because we're you know the children are now also playing Irish music. They all play their whistles, and um, two of them have started playing the fiddle, um, and they're you know they're actually being taught by um one of our friends Kathy who plays with us in the sessions so so yes it it's still you know it's great because it can involve all the things we enjoy our friends um and our kids and wine yeah <laughs> well would you would you do would you do another song would you would you do a song yeah for us okay yeah. so i'm going to sing the cobbler's daughter which is a song that actually i learned from uh Jamie Malloy because he used to sing it and one of his daughters used to sing it and I just thought it was a gorgeous wee song um, and it's actually um, was recorded by Kate Rosby who's an English folk singer so um, yeah it's just a quirky cute little song called um, The Cobbler's Daughter Kate Rosby yeah. something else ah, she's great she's lovely great singer beautiful voice yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, great. So, yeah. Cobbler's Daughter mm-hmm. Tracy thank you so much for taking time to sit down and have a chat with us Thank you. That's been it's been fun. Thank it's you. Been <laughs> All right, here we are, the cobbler's daughter. I am a cobbler's daughter. My thoughts are rude and mean, but a finer or a bonnier lass, oh, you've never seen. I plagued my father's head, for my life I would wed, and my mother's in the prison cause of me. There was a handsome young man who used to live near me If I went out, if I went in, it always follow me I swear I don't rue the day, but it happened as I say I took him to me chamber room to see I led him to me chamber so we could be alone Not knowing that me mother and me father were at home He kissed me on the cheek and I screamed till I was weak my father came a running to the door. He's jumped upon the young man as I was standing by, and he brought his fist behind his head and he thumped him in the eye. My mother heard the din up the stairs. She did begin with a broom for a weapon she held high. Out ran the young man and to the stair straightway but my mother she was waiting like a raging bull i'd say she's hit him on the head and the young man fell like lead quite dead upon the floor he lay i am a cobbler's daughter me thoughts are rude and mean but a finer or a bonnier lass oh you've never seen I plagued me father's head for my life I wouldn't wed and my mother's in the prison cause of me Tracy McGeeg, thank you. That was that was so great. What do you think of that, Darren? We had a we had a so after that tune, we had a cup of tea, and it was just one of those end of the day, quarter to eleven at night cups of tea that was just sent from heaven, although made by Jerry. 
I'm jealous of Jerry. Cup of Jerry tea. made it. I don't even drink but tea. But it was, it was. I don't know. Like you know, when you kind of feel like you've done something, you've done a bit of work. You're usually, usually it happens when I, if I'm a bit hungover, feeling a bit worse for wear, and there's a time around, sort of, you know, ten o'clock in the morning, and you just suddenly you get a cup of tea, and you're like, oh, that's what I needed, and I don't know. It was. Sounds lovely. Maybe it was great, and yeah. so it was just a beautiful end to a really lovely chat. And so, thanks again, yeah. Tracy and Jerry, for your hospitality. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was really great. Now, Christmas is coming up. Oh, we're gonna do something a little bit different. We're taking we're gonna take two weeks off. Um, as much as we <laughs> bust ourselves to uh, try and do this. Every single week, we we kind of looked at the calendar, our commitments, and and what 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 can we do to make it up to you and actually make it worthwhile? I mean, you know what? There are hours worth of cracking tunes sitting there. So for the next two weeks, you're gonna have good old ramble at the start, like I used to. I'll be doing my begging for the Patreon. Don't worry about that. That'll always be there. But then the rest of the episode will just be caught like greatest hits. Like remember back on. Uh, <laughs> BBC, it wouldn't be BBC, it would be an ITV to have like smash hits of the bloody <laughs> summer hits. <laughs> well, that's that's just going to be that's two it, weeks. It, yeah. It should be lovely. We're thinking, look, it's going to be Christmas Eve. You'll get the first one will drop. It's going to be an hour of music in there. Don't go away. Yeah. Don't go away. We will we'll be, be back. back in January, but don't go away. But do listen, because I mean, where else? Like, so one of the things about this is kind of fun is that. When we're kind of churning through trying to do um, weekly episodes, it's quite hard to sort of zoom out and get an overall view of, of what we've been doing. And when we think about how lucky we are to have had every single person who has been mm-hmm. a guest on this uh, project so far, um, I know it's just awesome. And the, the idea of just sticking some tunes together and playing around with them and seeing how they sound side by side and... Yeah. Um, it gives us a chance to reflect on the music and to actually just hear, Cause there hear is the thing that we've been there. talking about. So, yeah. so that's what's going to happen uh, the next couple of weeks, um, the, the next two episodes on Christmas Eve and on the uh, 31st New Year's Eve yeah. will be tunes. So like, like, you'll be hearing from us. Can't you'll, say very, not, like, you'll you're going to party, <laughs> party Pilgrim's Hour of Tunes on New Year's Eve. That's I'm going to play it on repeat. In my New Year's Eve party until everybody leaves. Yeah, <laughs> if you know homes to go to. And so that's it. That's what's coming up. So, till next week. Thanks again, Tracy McGeig. Cheers. Good luck. Hi, my name is Jekso. Please become a good subscriber to the podcast. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.